We're in Genesis 13. With the first 11 chapters, the primary focus of this was the fallenness, the rebellion, the sinfulness of humanity. So what humans were made to be, intended to be, and how they lost that and what they are now. So this is the, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. They were very episodic. There were very short episodes where there was very little character development, very little fleshing out of major details, and the episodes were quick and sweet and done and over with. You didn't get real in-depth understanding of who Noah was or Cain or any of that kind of stuff. When we get to Abraham, now we're introducing into the plan of redemption, how God is going to begin to take these scattered people who deserve to be scattered in order to prevent the rebellion, to prevent their unity against God, and to prevent them from building massive cities that threaten the family and community, and how God is going to take one of these scattered men and begin to develop a true nation, a true city, a true people, a true family that can exemplify the divine blessings of God so that the entire world will be blessed through them. That is the main idea of the entire Bible, of God choosing a people in order to make himself known to them and in them so that they can be a blessing to the entire world as they exemplify divine blessing. That is the main idea, which will then ultimately lead to the salvation of humanity. So this is where the plan of redemption gets introduced. Two chapters on creation, chapter 3 through 11 on the fall, and the rest of the Bible on redemption. That lets you know what's the most important thing to God. Now we get to Abraham, and Abraham becomes less episodic. It's the stories start becoming more fleshed out. There's a lot more plot structure. The characters are more developed. We start learning a lot about Abraham. He's more developed. He is sad. He is happy. He has successes. He has failures. He's obedient. He's disobedient. At the same time, we begin to see him change where we've never seen characters change. They just stay static the entire time. And the stories, each episode, are starting to connect to each other. So you see a beginning, a going through, and the end of a life, rather than these isolated stories. But at the same time, God becomes less prominent. In the first 11 chapters, God was the main subject all the time, practically, in every single story, doing, creating, saving, redeeming, pursuing people. Now God steps back out a little bit more, and we see God coming, and he's going to come to Abraham in ways that we feel like, man, I wish he came to me like that. Um, But he's still not going to be as dominantly active all the time. He's going to speak. So he spoke to Abraham in the beginning of chapter 12, but we don't really see God at all at work the rest of the chapter. And we're going to see him briefly in 13, a little bit 15, and a little bit in 17, but he's just not as dominant. And the idea is that humanity and who they are and how they're getting to know God is starting to become the emphasis. You should know a lot about who God is by now. Although there's a lot more to learn, and that will be developed in the rest of the Bible, and there's a lot more to learn beyond the Bible, you should still have a pretty good idea of what he is and his character is all about by now. And so now we're more interested in, or the narrator is more interested in, now that we know who God is, how does that character of God affect people? Two things of why I think God is stepping back in a, he's still directly and actively involved, 
But in a story narrative sense, he's not the dominant main character anymore. And partly it's because we were made in the image of God, meant to take over this creation. Part of it is God's not going to focus on humanity to show what God, how God affects humanity and how God and how humanity responds, both good and bad, because there is no end to understanding God. But we can pretty get a, get a pretty good idea of how we can respond in good and bad ways. And that's where we're mostly affected. Now, God is still the main character. He is still the hero. It's still always about him. He's just not as directly and actively involved as we're used to in the first 11 chapters. And he'll become less involved as we go through Genesis. But what's interesting is when we get to chapter 3 of Exodus, he becomes highly involved again. And so it's not that God is disappearing. He's going to become incredibly involved for the rest of the Torah to the point where he speaks practically the entire book of Leviticus and most of Deuteronomy. Um, so there's going to be this in and out with the involvement of God throughout the Bible. So Abraham has been called by God, or Abram. He's been called by God. He followed God, dropped everything cold turkey, and God blessed him with four promises. I'll give you a land. I'll make a great nation, which necessitates children, yet he has no children. And then I will bless you personally and protect you, and I will bless the world through you. So those are the four promises. So now we are introduced to three major obstacles. One, the obstacle is that he's brought Lot with him. So he hasn't truly left everything behind, even though he did leave his father behind before he died. He's in the land of Canaan, which are jacked up evil people, and they also occupy the land, so it's hard to take the land when somebody else has it. And the third one is pretty much himself, <laughs> where he's not really fully understanding who God is. Oh, sorry, the bareness of Sarah is the third one. Um, but a minor one on the fourth one is that he doesn't fully understand who God is. Remember, he's a pagan. And all he's ever known is pagan way of gods. And they're absent. They are unloving. They are limited in their power. They're limited in their influence. And so this is what he expects of God. So he goes to Egypt, and he doesn't expect God to show up. And God does show up. And so he learns a very important lesson about God there, that he's faithful even when he's not faithful, and that God is, transcends all boundaries, all territories, all elements. So that brings us to chapter 13. So in verse 1, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt into the Negev, and he took his wife and all of his possessions with him, as well as Lot. Now Abram was very wealthy in livestock, silver, and gold. So he's becoming more wealthy. God is blessing him. Notice he brings Lot with him, which means Lot was with him in Egypt during that time. So what was Lot doing when Abram's passing his wife off as his sister? We don't know. The Bible is not interested in that. It just doesn't think it's relevant at that point. So he journeyed from place to place from the Negev as far as Bethel, and he returned to the place where he had pitched his tent at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, and this is the place where he had first built the altar, and there Abram worshipped Yahweh. So he goes back to where he was last faithful to God. God kind of forgives him and wipes the slate clean, and he worships God. Now Lot was traveling with Abram, and he had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they were living side by side because their, they possessed, their possessions were so great that they were not able to live alongside one another. So their quarreling between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen began to increase. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land at that time. 
notice it's not specifically Lot and Abram that are quarreling. It's their men and their men quarreling with each other. A couple of things to understand here. There, God is blessing both Lot and Abram so much that there's not enough grass for them to graze on. But the other thing is, if you've been or seen pictures of Israel, there's not a whole lot of grass to begin with. And there's not a lot of shrubbery to begin with. Let alone that they're in the midst of a famine, let alone that they're being fruitful and multiply. So the situation gets desperate. And when people begin to see resources disappear, their best comes out, right? No. So the men begin to quarrel. So we see Lot is not really being a blessing to Abraham. He's actually presenting a problem, a drain. He's threatening the promises. But what we're going to see is Abram probably believes that Lot is his son, not in a literal biological sense, but by the fact that Lot has left everything to come with Abraham means that Lot has become like a surrogate son. And Abram has no descendants. So it would be natural that if you have no sons, who are you going to leave it to? Your nephew. That's the most logical conclusion without having sons. So Lot, he probably sees Lot as the fulfillment of God's promises. Right now, he's probably not thinking, miracles coming. Sarah's going to have a kid. They haven't had a kid. He's 75 years old, and there's no kid. And this God, remember, he doesn't fully understand this God. This God's limited regions. Yes, he just scared Pharaoh, but, I mean, you know how hard it would be for us to believe that God could do that today, even after this entire Bible, let alone not really fully understand, grasping who God is. So he's thinking the great nation's going to come through Lot, which in a way is his a biological relative, and he probably very much loves Lot. And we're going to see that love a lot when he goes and rescues him. He sees Lot as that is his son. Now, that's very important for you to understand that conflict and what's going to happen and what, that, what effect that would have on Abram. But then we're also reminded that, remember, the Canaanites are there because this does a couple of things. One, we're introduced to the problem of Lot, which shouldn't be there which reminds us all yeah about those other problems, the one the Canaanites there, and reminds us of the fact that if Abram thinks Lot is going to be his inheritance, then all yeah, Sarah is barren. So this is God's way of just repeating the problem over and over again. This is the main problem, the barrenness of Sarah. The whole story is about this. So if you've ever done a plot structure, every story has a plot structure. If it doesn't have a plot structure, nobody watches it because something deep signed them says that movie wasn't good. Okay, so you have an introduction. Everybody's happily ever after, okay? So if you do Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you're introduced to four kids. They're playing around, hide-and-go-seek. They discover a wardrobe. They go into a world. You're introduced to Narnia. There's a lampstand. There's snow, all that kind of stuff. So you're just introduced to the story. If the whole entire story was nothing but that, it'd be boring. Then you get to the second point where there's a problem introduced. So there's a problem introduced, and this is like in Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. This is, there's a wicked witch who's controlling everything in forever winter with no Christmas. Okay, and so that's the problem. And everything gets bad and bad and bad and bad. Everything in the story is about new problems. Okay, so if it's an alien invasion, everything's great. You're in high school, you're in college, you're at work. Then the aliens come down really bad. 
okay? And then they start sucking people's brains and destroying New York and destroying San Francisco, and you realize that none of your weapons have anything, and every time you try to send something against it, the aliens destroy another country, another person, the hero dies, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse until there's no hope. That's the climax. The climax of every story is where you reach the problem, introduces there's no hope in at all. So the, we invent this secret weapon that'll destroy the aliens, and all of a sudden you realize the weapon fails. Everybody's going to die. Or in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, Aslan dies. Spoiler alert. Okay, Aslan dies. And now there's no hope whatsoever because the great lion is dead. How could you ever defeat the witch? So then that's the climax. So then sometimes this point and this point, basically one, two, three, and four, can be combined together in an instant moment. Sometimes they're spread out. This is where the, the, the resolution is introduced. Okay, so the problem is not resolved, but hope comes back for the first time ever. And that says they look at the table, and lo and behold, Aslan is alive. Has the witch been defeated? No. But has the hope been reintroduced again? Yes. So in the alien invasion, lo and behold, we've discovered that they designed their ship in such a way that if you push your finger into the middle of it, it'll blow up, okay, like the Death Star, okay? Great design. So... So, have you destroyed them yet? No, but there's hope introduced. Then, all of a sudden, they begin to decline into the resolution. So, they fight a battle with the witch, she is defeated, and then it's happily ever after. So, that's the resol resolution that's happened, and the conclusion is they live, they grow up, they become kings and queens, and everything is great until they go back through the wardrobe and they have to go through the worst plot structure ever, do middle school all over again. That's a plot structure. Every story follows that. If you are mostly Americans, we do comedies. There's comedy and tragedies. Remember comedy is not ha-ha-ha, funny comedy. It's that everything works out well. The resolution, the, the main conflict, which is usually man versus man, man versus nature, man versus um, himself, man versus another man, that kind of stuff, is overcome. Or it's a tragedy, which typically is mostly Easter movies. And that's where the, tra the tragedy, the problem actually overcomes. The aliens win and everybody dies and they start ruling the planet. So that's a tragedy. Now, in the Western world, we're mostly interested in comedies because we think life sucks. So we like to go watch movies to escape reality and dream and be romantics. Not that there's not always something wrong with that. That just we tend to be more romantic and want to escape more often. In the Eastern world, they tend to have more tragedies because they're more interested in explaining why is a life like this. So if you're struggling with why did I not get the girl, why did I not get the promotion, the movie helps explain and helps you mentally process why things don't always work out all the time. So tragedies and comedies are both good. Now, when you get to the First Testament, you're going to have a little bit of a comedy because God is always redeeming people. And so there will always be some sense of the problem will be resolved. But every single book in the First Testament will end as a tragedy because we're still fallen sinful people. And so the first book ever in the Bible that really ends on a positive note, except for maybe Ruth, but once you put Ruth in the greater context, you realize it doesn't really have a happy ending, is the Gospels. The Gospels are the first book that ever ends in a truly positive note and the book of Acts, because Christ has come. 
And so this is general plot structure. So what is the main, so this whole thing focuses on one major problem. And this problem drives the entire story. So for Abraham, it is the barrenness of his wife. So we are quickly introduced. We're basically given like Abraham as a father. He has some relatives. Bam, she's barren. And then that doesn't really still hit you as hard until God comes along and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And now there's your problem. The problem is he has no children. They live in the land of the Canaanites. And Lot presents a worldly solution to a great nation rather than a godly solution to a great nation. That's a problem. And because God says you're going to be a great nation and he's not. And it seems impossible. And things are going to get worse. Abraham is going to pass his wife off and give her to Pharaoh, which Pharaoh might actually be the father of the kid, which would really screw everything up. And there's going to be more and more problems, and this is going to get worse and worse and worse until you're going to hit the climax. Now, there's two climax in this story. One is a mini pivot where Ishmael comes into it, and you begin to realize, oh, wow, he has a son, and it kind of was a little bit divine because he's still really old. That must be it. And you kind of lose all hope because obviously he's the firstborn son, so he's going to get it all. So that's a little mini climax, which gets resolved with the birth of Isaac. And Ishmael begins to threaten Isaac. But the ultimate climax is when he finally has a son, but he's told to sacrifice him. Because if Isaac is the only way that the blessings could be fulfilled, because God said so, and God now tells him to kill him, then there's no hope. Okay, so when that knife is plunging down, you hit the climax of the story. Everything else is resolution after that. So that kind of gives you an idea that everything the narrator is saying, everything, even the things that you're like, how does that connect? They do. They connect to the idea of he's to be a great nation and he has no kid. And that's the major problem that threatens them in this story. Lot presents a threat because Abram's going to look to him as God's fulfillment rather than looking to God. It's easy to look to a biological descendant and think, great nation. It's harder to think he's not it and something bigger is coming because that requires you to trust in God. That requires you to trust in the unseen. He's looking to Lot. This presents the tension. Lot's actually threatening and sucking the blessings of Abraham out by him taking the land because now he's got to share the land with Lot. So they begin to quarrel. So Abram comes to Lot and says, you pick the best land. Let's not fight. Let's not quarrel. You pick where you want to go, and wherever you want to go, I'll go the opposite direction. Not in a divorcing kind of a sense on bad terms, but just for the sake of surviving a famine where there's very little. Now, this is incredible, because why in the world would Abram be so generous and willing to give the best. Yes, you're like, okay, Lot is, he sees him as his son, and anybody's going to be totally generous to his son. But Abraham still got like 140 more years left in his life. So, right? Yes. So he's going to die at 175, and he's only 75 years old now. So he's actually got 100 years left. So bad math. So he's got 100 years left about. So he's not thinking like, I'm going to die soon. Like he still has to take care of his family for 100 more years. The reality is he's not going to just give the best because he sees himself about ready to die and his son's going to take it. Why would he be willing to give, offer up the best and lose the best? Especially when none of this is his. 
because he just experienced a God who just gave him incredible blessings, even when he did not deserve it. This is the cool thing about Abram, is that the thing that you worship is the thing that you will become. And Abram has just experienced God in a very powerful way, where he saw God bless him tremendously with the wealth of Egypt when Abram was not faithful. And he comes out of that seeing the faithfulness of God, seeing the power of God, seeing the ability to overcome Pharaoh is the most powerful thing. And he turns around and he begins to act like God in that circumstance. Now, as we keep reading the story, he won't always act like God, but this is a change. And so you see a change in Abraham's character. And so as God... Abram stands there, and God says, go, and I will give you. Abraham puts his arms out, and his arms begin to overflow with this abundance of blessings. Abram can't help to be open-handed with everybody else. And the thing is, when it comes to God, the more open-handed you are, the more things you get. The more tight-fisted you are, the less that you get. Now, don't be open-handed just to get more, because God looks at the heart. But the reality is... This is how Abram's operating. He sees God, and he begins to trust God, and he says, take whatever you want. Now, as we look at the map, we see, or, um, we see that the chiastic structure here focuses on Lot's choice of Sodom. Okay, so this is the main thing. The whole story is going to move towards his choice of Sodom, which shows you that Lot's going to move away eventually. So if we look at the map, Abram and Lot are in this region between Bethel and Ai. And they stand on the hill, and they look towards the east across the Jordan River. So he's looking eastward, and he says, if you go left, pointing to the north, I will go right. And if you go right, pointing to the south, then I'll go left to the north. Because all the land that God provided them, set, promised him, was between the Jordan, the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. So Abram's thinking, all that God has given me is between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. Do you want north or do you want south? And we're told that Lot looked towards the east and the land of the Dead Sea, where the land was very fertile and lush and green on the other side of the Jordan River. What land does Lot look towards? The land that God had not given them. The land that God had not given them. Now, for you to fully understand the context of this, you have to be a Jew who just came out of Egypt and all you've known for 400 years is God promised you the land of Canaan and you haven't had the land of Canaan. You've been a slave in a different land all your entire life. That's all you've ever known. And God finally redeems you and brings you out of, the exodus, out of Egypt through the Exodus in this incredible display of power. And God himself shows up He's brought you to Mount Sinai where you've practically peed your pants because it's so terrifying to come in the presence of God. And God gives you the law and he re-emphasizes the promises of God through the law that you'll get the land. And then he begins to make you understand something very clearly. There is no blessing of God outside the land. Now that will change when Christ comes. But until Christ comes... If you are not circumcised, which we have not gotten there, but every Jew listening to this would already know about circumcision, 
And if you are not in the land, there is no blessings. You are outside the covenant of God. This becomes very significant. Why? And you know this, because where did Moses die? Outside the land. Why does he not allow to go into the land? Because he sinned against God. So right there you see that being outside the land is bad. It's a judgment. Then when Israel sins so drastically, what does God eventually do to them as punishment? Exiles them from the land. And so Jeremiah then comes on and says, when I bring you back to the land, anyone who does not come back to the land is outside the covenant. They're outside the will of God. Now, this doesn't mean that they're not saved because obviously we know Moses for certainly is in heaven. I mean, that guy is definitely in heaven, especially when God declares him the greatest prophet that has ever lived other than the Messiah. So it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It just means there's no blessings It's hard to be in the will of God. And most people who don't, they leave the land, it probably does say something about their salvation. Not everyone. Because when the Jews said, oh, we can't take the land, God said, fine, you're not going to land. And he punished them. Which is why when Jeremiah says, anybody who doesn't come back to the land is outside the will of God. So when Esther refuses to go back to the land, she's an example of a disobedient, ungodly woman. Because she won't obey God, and she does not go back to the land. She's outside the will of God. So you have to realize that there's two things that are really, well, three, really, that are going to be pounded into the Jewish mind. Circumcision, blessings only are found inside the land, and only through the law can one truly please God. So you're a Jew now, and you at least have this because you just went through the exile or the slavery. You were just brought to the promised land. You refused to take the promised land, and you're experiencing 40 years of hell now because of that. And Lot looks outside the land and says, that's what I want. Every Jew knows, oh, that's bad. He's walking away from the promises of God. And not just that, everybody Sodom and Gomorrah is infamous in everybody's minds as much as it is in ours. Not only that is he's looking towards Sodom. He's looking towards the city. He's looking towards the most corrupted, most judged city in all of human history, which is going to become one of the two greatest examples of disobedience to God throughout the Second Testament. And he wants to leave the land. Lots bad. (laughs) And this is where you should think, if you're Abraham, and you have no kids, and this boy, your nephew, is your son and your mind, and he will take your inheritance. And now your boy is looking outside the promises of God. Your boy is looking to leave the land. He is walking away from you. Now, one way this is really bad, because Lot reveals himself for who he truly is. But another way it's good Because it'll allow Abraham to remove Lot from his mind so he can begin to see God work outside the box. Does that make sense? So this reveals Lot's character as bad, but it also begins to remove one of the obstacles to the promises of God because Lot's going to walk away. And Abram is now going to be freaking out thinking how how the promise is going to happen now. Maybe Lot will come back. And this is why in chapter 14, he so desperately rescues Lot. I think he's rescuing Lot not just because he loves Lot, but because he's hoping that Lot will come back to him, which is a noble desire because he's put his hope there. So Lot looks towards Sodom. 
Verse 10, Lot looked up and saw the whole region of the Jordan. He noticed that all of it was well watered before Yahweh obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, just in case you didn't realize that that was bad, <laughs> Lot looked at the land. He noticed it was all watered. By the way, God hadn't obliterated them yet. And he saw that it was great for luscious growth. You know now, like, Lot, don't go there. Lot, don't go there. Now, two things are happening here. The last time we saw that phrase, well watered like a garden, was the Garden of Eden. So there's something about Jordan that looks like the Garden of Eden, which in your initial instinct, you would think, wow, isn't that good? You should be desiring that. But remember, Eden was lost because of sin and became a desolate, barren land because of sin. So then God comes in and reminds them, oh, by the way, just like the fall, because the fall will always keep repeating itself over and over and over again, so to speak. I'm about ready to obliterate it because of Solomon Gomorrah's sins. And so in that way, it truly is like the Garden of Eden, where it was once well watered, but it will be obliterated. And so this should make you feel the dun-dun-dun-dun, the dread that is coming. It's not greener on the other side. And Lot, all he sees is a garden, but the narrator's pointing out theology, wickedness, walking away from Abram, pursuing the city. Like the garden of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, all the way to Zor. Now the land of Egypt should also be a reminder because who just went to the land of Egypt? Abram. Was God happy with that? No, because he left the land of promises. So the narrator is doing everything he can to say, look, bad, 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 bad. And so interesting how often we miss all that. And we just think, oh, he's going for green things. I would do that too. Well, probably, yeah, because we're sinners. But we miss all the things the narrator is trying to tell you. And so Lot chose for himself the whole region of the Jordan and traveled toward the east. Remember, you always move eastward in judgment. You always move eastward in judgment. And so this becomes Lot walking away from the promises of God. This is Lot walking away from the promises of God. So now two questions become very prominent. Will Lot come back? And two, who's now going to become the inheritance if Lot doesn't ever come back? The problem just actually got worse. (laughs) Does this make sense? And just in case you miss it again, he says to you just one more time, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, but Lot settled among the cities of the Jordan and pitched his tents next to Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were extremely wicked and rebelled against God. So he keeps letting you know this is not good, this is not good. Abram lives in the countryside, Lot chooses a city, because cities and nations are bad. Cities and nations are bad. But Abram's remain faithful. And in the traditional way that God always works, God immediately shows up again and says, Yahweh said to Abram, verse 14, Look, from the place where you stand to the north and the south and the east and the west, I will give you all the land that you see and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone who is able to count the dust of the earth, then your descendants also be counted. Get up and walk through the land, for I will give it to you. Because Abram has been open-handed and Lot took, God rewards that by saying, I'm going to give you more. And before God just said, come to the land. Here, look, the land. But now God says, look, north and south. But now he adds west and east to it. 
And so God offers it to them. But then God says, walk the entire land. And this was a way that ancient kings would actually mark their territory. They would claim territory and they would actually walk the border of their entire country to say that it was theirs. And not to be crass, it's kind of like when you first move into your house and your dog immediately just pees along the entire length of the fence. It's marking their territory. The border belongs to me. Okay, don't cross it. The reality is, he goes there. Now, we technically don't know really where Sodom and Gomorrah is. We know that it's along the Dead Sea because lots of markers suggest that. We know that at the time of Abraham, on this map, it looks like an upside-down bottle opener, the Dead Sea. At the bottom part of the bottle opener, that most likely was not there. We know from records that the Dead Sea was actually two-thirds the size of what it is now. In fact, even today, this bottom part is more shallow than the rest of the Dead Sea. And so something happened where that part then flooded and the Dead Sea went in and filled that part. This has led some people to suggest that some Gomorrah might have been in there and that the reason it filled in is because at the end of chapter 19, God turns into a giant crater after a bunch of fire hailstone comes down and obliterates everything. So we do know that Sodom and Gomorrah is definitely on the eastern side of the Jordan River because it is clearly revealed that it's outside the land. And we know it's around the Dead Sea because we're told that he looked towards the Dead Sea, the region of salt. That's the only region of salt. There's an incredibly high salt content there. But most people suspect that it's probably in the southern part. But other than that, God wiped it off the face of the earth so successfully that there's no archaeological evidence of it. So... Although there's lots of salt pillars and mountains and mounds there. So some people said maybe one of them's Lot's wife, but you've probably put her on your broccoli by now. God then offers him even more. And then he makes this promise. I will make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now God begins to emphasize even more your descendants. And we begin to push closer towards the biologicalness of not just remote nephew, but immediate son. But this is what's interesting. Remember, the land, the dust, that is where the blessings are. Okay, so that represents the seed. The seed that physically comes from you is the land because seeds, plant or seeds, children, can only come from the land. The seed can only come from the land, not the water or the sky. And the only way that you can make your children grow and walk around is if you're on land and you're growing things from the land to feed them. But what's also interesting is later when we get to the next passage later in chapter 17, God is going to say, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven, which is more heavenly, spiritual. So then remember how humanity was meant to be a link between the land and heaven, God and the land. Now, God now gives two analogies of the land below and the sky above, and because Abram is going to have the descendants of both, he's going to restore that link between the heaven and earth. But some of us suggest that the land might be the physical descendants, and the stars represent the spiritual descendants, which is the church. Because Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. This is the analogy that God gives. As Abram sees the incredible generosity of God. He can't help but become the thing that he worships. And as he becomes incredibly generous to other people, God can't help but continue to fill him up as he blesses other people. 
And so we see that. And we see in Abram this beginning to grow. And Abram actually trusts in a deeper, fuller way than he has. Before, just a little bit of going. And then he messes up big time. But now he's really offering up a lot. But at the same time, we see the continued threat to the promises. Because not only has Lot walked away, which opens God's ability to work maybe more fully, but Lot also is moving towards a wicked city so that if he comes back, he could either come back in redemption and renew the threat to Isaac, or he could come back corrupted and renew the threat to Abram. And so there's tension here. There's tension. 